This is episode 193 with my former college teammate, the creative force behind the Endeavor Run running retreat and part-time graduate school professor, Mr. Jake Tuber. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to is about the psychological side of long-term running injuries. You're going to hear from Jake Tuber, a former sprinter teammate of mine, and what it was like trying to rehabilitate a torn hip labrum at the beginning of the pandemic in the unique mental toll that your environment can cause. But before we start, I want to make sure we're all traveling to the same destination race today. On this show, you can expect conversations between me and the thought leaders in the running industry to give you the knowledge, the mindsets, and tools to get faster, stronger, and become a more capable athlete. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. I think you'll also love our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of videos on building focus and confidence, how to stay healthy and run with better form, strength workouts, and a lot more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners level up their training, race faster, and prevent more running injuries. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. And our sponsor, Elemental Labs, helped make this episode possible. They make high-sodium electrolytes for athletes to help manage your hydration needs. And they have released an all-new flavor just in time for summer, watermelon salt. It's delicious. I love it. Encourages me to drink more fluids, and I honestly just feel better when I have more electrolytes after my runs. It also just happens to be their number one most requested flavor. Go to drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning to check out the details and get your hydration needs dialed in for the summer season. Moving on to our conversation today, Mr. Jake Tuber is joining us. Jake is a sprinter turned distance runner, a former college track and field teammate of mine from Connecticut College, and someone who might just have some compromising college party videos of me. But he's not here to extort me. We're here to talk about his comeback from a serious hip labral tear. He first experienced this in the summer of 2019. He had surgery in March 2020, only to come out of that as the pandemic was hitting the United States and starting to become very real. This episode is more about mindset. It's about how you think about yourself as a runner, how you plan for the future, and how to plan a productive comeback. If you've ever missed a long time period of running and started to feel like you'd never get back into it, that it was just too hard to run pain-free again, or maybe you're just having a hard time thinking of yourself as a runner, I think you're going to get a lot of value from this episode. By the way, Jake is also the creator of Endeavor Run, an innovative running retreat that's being held in person in Boulder, Colorado this August. If you'd like to learn more, go to endeavorrun.com. And that's spelled E-N-D-E-A-V-O-R-U-N. 
endeavorrun.com. You can find out all the details about the camp. And if you'd like to sign up and join Jake, me, my brother from another mother, author Matt Fitzgerald, former podcast guest and 219 marathoner Peter Bromka, and potentially a slew of elite runners if they're not at the Tokyo Olympics, we would love to have you. Code STRENGTHRUNNING, all one word, will save you $100 on your registration fee at endeavorrun.com. All right, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Jake Tuber. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. It's so nice to be here again. I'm always excited to chat with you. We go way back to just after Y2K, the millennium. (laughs) When did we meet? 2004? I think around 2005, 2004 or so. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, we were college teammates for a little while. We were, and uh, I'm still... I'm still looking through the archives of my old computers to find some of those videos I have of you after hours, post-meet, hanging out. Uh, You know what I'm talking about, Jason. Maybe I'll just leave that teaser there for the audience. I'm going to find it. Well, let's stick to running, Jake. The the (laughs) after-hours video. Wow, there's video of some potential. Taken on my uh, Canon Elf, uh, my my high school graduation present present Canon Elf. Uh, There's probably a few snippets of video that's worth a few gigabytes of data somewhere on an old computer, Jason, that we're going to dredge up? Well, I have my old tape recorder, an audio tape recorder that I used to walk around with on Saturday evenings in college and just, you know, recount funny stories and remind myself of funny jokes that happened on Saturday nights. And let me tell you that those are probably worth some money in uh, extortion fees at this point. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) If anyone has the technology to zap Jason's handheld tape recorder and upload that to the cloud, please do. I will get in on that blackmail with you immediately. (laughs) So yes, for for our listeners here, full disclosure, Jake and I go way back. We were college buddies and I'm psyched that we were able to connect after all these years. You're doing some really cool things in the running space, Jake. Um, Some things that I'm a part of and very excited to be a part of. And and I want to get to that later. But you know, first I want to talk about your running, Jake. Now, you are not a pro runner, you are not an elite athlete, but you've had a hard time over the last year or so. And I kind of want to explore the emotional journey you've been on because I know it's going to resonate with a lot of runners, including myself, who've, you know, I've missed a lot of time due to injury, not as long as you have and not with as serious of an injury, but I think it's really, you know, this this shared experience that a lot of runners have. And and I think it's worth exploring because we very rarely do. So maybe we could start with what happened to you, Jake? How'd you get injured? Tell us the story. It's interesting you mentioned this idea of that injury experience being a shared one because it's something I feel now, but it was new. I was not an injured runner type of person. I had been really lucky despite playing a lot of different sports growing up and Running became my most serious one once we got to college and and after that for a bit. But I was never an injured runner. I, you know, I would get sore. I would, you know, maybe I extended a hamstring. I had some IT band issues a little bit in college, but uh, this was not, I was not the chronically injured runner that I know so many people. My wife, for example, chronically injured all through her college track days. That was new to me. Um, and what happened was at some point over the summer of two, 2019, 2019 BC before COVID. And uh, at some point over that summer, I think it was due mostly to repeated use. There was not one moment where this happened, but there was a moment in mid August where I went for a run 
and I could tell something in my right hip was just off. I've run enough miles. I've been around enough to know that this was not just an overuse pain that I should maybe sit on. Maybe I need to do some extra strength work around. Something felt fundamentally different to the point where I knew I needed to stop running. And I actually remember exactly where I was on the bike path that runs behind our house, uh, you know, about half a mile up the way where I said, nope, I'm going to stop, turn around and walk home. And this is different. And eventually met with a doctor about it who recommended I get an MRI. And the MRI revealed pretty blatantly that I had a, a pretty severe tear of my right hip labrum. And, you know, after meeting with one or two different doctors who are uh, luckily some of the top folks in the Washington, D.C. area where I live here in, in Northern Virginia and Arlington, they both independently recommended that I get surgery to repair it. They said it's pretty straightforward. It's the kind of thing that we're pretty good at repairing with the right kind of surgery and physical therapy. And, you know, a lot of elite athletes have gone through this. So, uh, there's reason to think that even uh, uh, not even sub elite athlete like myself could potentially survive it and move on and get better. So that was the plan. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the hip labrum. This is not an injury that I, I don't think most runners typically get, uh, especially tearing it. You know, it's pretty serious. Where is the hip labrum? The hip labrum. So it's important to acknowledge that because if you tell someone you have a labral tear and they know what they're talking about, they'll say, oh, your shoulder or your hip because your shoulder has labrum as well. Your hip labrum, uh, the best I can describe it, and this is my my non-medical uh, sort of self-injury version, it's basically, uh, I feel it right where the pelvic bone kind of is, you know, if somebody asks you to press on your hip, it's probably sort of where you'd press if you felt to that right side, kind of where that bone sort of seems to cut in. And one of the reasons that I was having that injury was that the nature of my hip and the way it was shaped, the bone and my pelvic bone, the bone of my leg and my pelvic bone were kind of grinding against one another a little bit and was kind of wearing that down. Um, so it's that critical part, that critical ligament there, uh, assuming ligament is the right medical term. I'm, it's probably slightly off. I, I probably should have done more research knowing that uh, you wanted to go deep into the the depths of my labrum in that serious way, Jason. But uh, it's that area right there that kind of is that connective tissue between your hip and your leg that is obviously for anyone who's running, uh, you know, it's pretty critical the second it's not working, but you don't think about much because it doesn't typically get sore the way a hamstring would, the way your glute would or your Achilles or calf or something like that. Got it. Now, I just quickly looked up a hip labral tear and the labrum is just a soft tissue that covers the acetabulum, which is the socket of the hip. Obviously. Yeah. That's obviously what I was uh, dancing around. I didn't want to make your listeners feel like they weren't up to the same scientific level of discourse that you and I were. So I intentionally um, fetched <laughs> that description, but not that actually, that sounds right. And certainly feels right as I put my hand on my hip. Yeah. So what's the typical prognosis for recovery? Is this something where you get surgery and you're fine in a week or two, or is this a, a long-term issue that takes a lot of rehabilitation? It's typically a longer term issue. Um, it is recoverable. It's not the kind of thing where, um, you know, most folks who are young and relatively healthy, and I'm not that young. And at the time I was pretty healthy. I was in pretty good shape then, um, should be able to get surgery, do the right kind of physical therapy and return to 100%. Actually, one of the things that uh, gave me really confidence going into it was I had talked about this with a friend of mine who uh, is a full-time professional runner, and they were talking about how 
they knew somebody quite well who had just experienced it and about eight months later came back and ran their best time ever in a hundred miler. Um, now, obviously, this person is genetically wired uh, to repair their body tissue better than I am. Uh, but at the same time, that was like, okay, this is this is something that, you know, with surgery, you know, I get a little bit of time in the pool, maybe a little bit of physical therapy. Uh, hopefully, I could be running again at a decent amount in four months. And maybe by six months, if all things go well, I could be doing the same workouts and whatnot that I was before. And that would have put you on track to potentially... Because you had, let's see, you had your surgery in March of 2020. Is that right? That's right. So if you're playing attention to the timeline, I found out uh, from the MRI in September of 2019. And the earliest date that I could schedule surgery, just given the availability of the surgeon and you know the outpatient center and whatnot, because the surgery takes a couple of hours and, and you're out for a few days or so just kind of on a, a series of medications trying to recover, would have been in mid-December. And my wife and I were expecting our first child in mid-December. And so because of the timing of that, we decided that it really made more sense for me to delay getting the surgery a bit so that we could have a few of those really critical, difficult first few months where I was a little bit more capable of walking around and, and holding an infant, uh, especially at random hours of the night, rather than being kind of confined in a drug-induced state to you know, the couch somewhere uh, or something like that. And so... We opted, uh, based on the timeline that was available, to schedule the surgery for March 9th, 2020, which, uh, yes, if for those of you who are here in the U.S. listening to this, was basically the Monday that coronavirus got real here in the U.S. Yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll never forget that that Friday was Friday the 13th. And that was the first day that my family was home all day. You know, it was like, okay, Friday the 13th, everything's shut down, which was very kind of ironic and and just kind of a, a foreshadowing of things to come almost. As, yes, it was. And at that point, I was sort of just coming out of my opiate-induced post-surgical haze. Uh, so we're spending a lot of time in a dark basement uh, in our house, not in someone else's weird dark basement. Well, I was just in the basement in our house because uh, we don't have a bathroom on our first floor. So I kind of camped out in the basement where there is a, a small second bathroom uh, in order to sort of live there for a few days. And it was a very surreal couple of days as the pandemic started. And like you, you know, we sort of expected, all right, well, this will be a weird three weeks while things kind of reset, but we'll get back out there. And, and little did I know, as I'm sure you're wanting to get into, that that would have a, a huge impact on my recovery timeline. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because I'm sure, you know, you getting that surgery and coming out of it and, you know, just hoping for a comeback, but then, you know, realizing that the world is shutting down and that things are not like they were previously. Did that make things easier or harder for you? It was significantly harder. Um, now, in the real sense, the world is because the pandemic did continue for more than just a couple of tough weeks, obviously. The world was much harder for everybody. So I think that the kind of uh, the general degree of difficulty was ratcheted up a few on that sort of one to 10 scale of, of life stress regardless. Uh, but for me in particular, it was really difficult. And I would say there were two main reasons why that was the case. So first and foremost, from a pragmatic standpoint, so much of my timeline for recovery was based around you know, when I could weave that into things, given the way I live my life. And it was actually that same Monday, or maybe it was the next, maybe it was March 15th. I can't remember exactly. It's, it's 
it was only a little over a year ago, but is you know, again, that was BC and this is a different era in our course of human history. Now, um, our daughter was supposed to, she was just about three months old or she was about to start daycare as my wife was set to go back into the office as her maternity leave was coming after she had a, a decent three months off, um, that she had saved some vacation up to take. And so we realized pretty quickly that she wasn't going to be going back in. I think it was that Sunday night, the eighth that her office was like, Hey, when you come in this week, don't worry about coming in this week. You know, you're going to be home. And so there was an element of, okay, well, I sort of expected to have eight hours of the day between 8.30 and 4.30 or whatnot with my daughter in someone else's care so that I could both rehabilitate in my spare time, but also work. Um, you know, I'm, I'm self-employed in my uh, industrial psychology and, and consultation and coaching practice, you know, Endeavor Run, which you alluded to before, and I know we'll, we'll talk about later, is is a creation. And so not only did I have to dictate my timeline, but my sort of financial outlook in the world was really crashing in different ways around me. And and, and I don't say that in a way to, to gain sympathy. At the end of the day, we, we've been so much more fortunate than so many people um, for nothing I can really take any credit for, just luck. But there was an element of, oh no, I need to spend every waking minute trying to figure out how to pivot all my businesses, trying to make sure that we're in a good place to not lose all of our income and clients um, at the same time, I was supposed to be uh, completing my dissertation uh, for my doctoral program. And so I was supposed to be using every extra hour that I wasn't working or rehabbing or caring for the little one to, to be devoted to scholarly research, which is, you know, it's not a great skill of mine either. I don't, I don't like spending a lot of time alone reading old journal articles. I like talking out ideas. Um, so it was really hard in the sense that life around me just would not give me the time. Like I was, I was on this treadmill of how do I work? How do I stay afloat? How do I stay awake with this little one who, who wouldn't sleep? Our daughter wasn't honestly, she's still, she still is not great at sleeping. Um, so it was really difficult uh, physiologically to adjust to that. Um, and the second one was just more purely psychological, but the, the state of re- return that I had imagined was predicated on a version of the world that no longer was the the nature of, Oh, cool. I'm going to get up early. And while my kiddo is lying on the mat, you know, trying to touch her toes, I could do some rehab exercises and then she'll go away. And then, you know, I'll be able to spend time with friends who are involved in running and that will keep me encouraged. And I'll be able to go physically three times a week and then two times a week. And then once a week to rehab and work with PT specialists who are going to actually physically help me execute this in a way that I'm not great at self-motivating. And there'll be races coming up and that will be on the calendar and I'll want to get back out there and I'll want to be taking care of myself. When all of that crashed psychologically, because it all went away pragmatically, there was an element of who cares? Uh, Who, so what? And not just because of the existential risk that COVID posed and it was like a, a massive shift in perspective, but it was like, well, all of those things that I really cared about deeply, I always knew they were superfluous. I always knew they were nice to haves, but I didn't want to have them anymore. I didn't, the things that got me excited to be taking care of myself and taking care of my health, they weren't there as drivers anymore. And any extra energy that I might have been able to spend and devote to psychological well-being that would have been like, all right, conjure that yourself, like force yourself to spend some time finding that spark on your own. 
that all went out the window because all of that was funneled into just being awake and alert enough when my kiddo wasn't sleeping to, you know, not have the business go under to make sure that my wife was also who's, you know, she's still just a couple months post a, a really difficult thing, which is pregnancy and childbirth is insane. Uh, so really being there to support her and it, it just kind of all collapsed. And the end result was when I wasn't doing something that was absolutely really necessary, I was doing whatever I could to distract myself, which in my case was often just trying to chat with friends and give them support. I get a lot of sustenance out of that and, and trying to do a few things for people in, in my network. Um, that felt really reassuring that I could be that voice. And then also just languishing in front of the television and watching reruns of old shows that I could sock out to and wouldn't force me to think too much. Yeah, I think that is just a feeling that so many of us experienced, you know, myself included. You know, I wasn't dealing with a newborn at home, but I was dealing with three kids at home. I can't imagine, Jason. I really, and you've got great kids too, you know, I can't imagine. (laughs) Careful, Jake. I don't think you've met them yet. (laughs) I know enough. (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, Yeah, and it's just very challenging. You know, I think a lot of people will find similarities in this story, you know, and especially with the aspect of your comeback with running. You know, you had all these grand plans. You were probably thinking of some fall race that was exciting to you that you might have been able to get in shape for. Maybe not a PR shape, but at least go out there and feel pretty strong and be confident in, you know, the preparation that you did for it. And there's a lot to be said about having something down the line in the future that gives you something to look forward to. And then to have that taken away just puts your entire recovery and the timeline of that into question. Now, did your recovery approach change? Did you just kind of give up on things or, or did you go even deeper into, you know, more aggressive rehabilitation? How did that work out? I wish, you know, I, I so wish that my, and forgive this, the psychobabble a bit here. I, I so wish that of the defense mechanisms that I had employed to avoid stress, I so wish that sublimation had been the one. I, I so wish that I could have channeled my stress and anxiety into physical exertion the way perhaps better versions of myself would have. I think it's a relatively mature, uh, developmentally mature way to, to handle stress, but it did not. It, it went the other direction. And that was despite, to your point, some grand plans. I, I mean, I, I can distinctly remember sort of a day or two after surgery it was, I was laying on the couch and texting uh, with some friends about how now that Boston and London had been postponed to the fall, it was going to be a rare year where all five world majors were going to line up one after another in the fall. And like you could be one of a handful of folks who, if things went well, could say they completed all of the world majors in a series of just a few, that one random time in history that it lined up that way. So I, I was sitting there now, granted I was on like a good amount of opiates at the time. So I, and I'm not someone who's ever used any drugs. So I felt I clearly was under the influence of something that was novel as well as powerful. And, uh, and I was texting friends, like, I'm going to do it. Like, I know that I've only run a half marathon, you know, distance wise, not even in a race, like a dozen times in my life, but I'm going to, I'm going to go for the marathon. Now I was not a distance guy. You remember me. I was, I was the sprinter on the team, right? I was the, I was the 400 guy on the DMR. And, uh, and so I was like, I'm going to take on the marathon here and blow people away. 
And wow, even even my friends like Jason, who are in the running community full time for a living, they're going to go, holy smokes, Jake really, Jake really took this took this thing to town. Like, man, what a what a comeback! He went from being on the couch and doing nothing for six months from September to March, and now he's out here, you know, in London and Tokyo, Boston. So I had all these grand plans, and I went completely the other direction. I would say not only did I not sublimate that and go deeper into rehab and channel that. But I kind of let the the weight of all of the small little things that were adding up during COVID, as well as the isolation. I'm I'm a pretty social creature, and and I get a lot of sustenance from being around other people physically. Uh, it energizes me. Talking to people who I can be helpful to is really powerful as a motivator for me. And so, with all of that gone. Not only did I not rehab, but I, you know, I wasn't paying attention to my basic nutrition, right? I was, you know, the basics of like, okay, just, you know, eat smart, don't eat too much, try to eat a little bit more plants than you normally would. Don't go crazy overthinking. That was, I don't care. I was like, give me delivery from wherever I want today again, because listen, if things are going to be going poorly, they might as well be going real poorly. And I, I kind of just piled it on and, uh, you know, a couple months later was in a place where I really felt worse physically than I had pre-surgery. Uh, I wasn't rehabbing, wasn't able to go to rehab. I had gained a ton of weight and not sort of healthy, good, muscular, just general getting older weight. Um, it was really like poor choices leading to weight in a way that, uh, made me upset with myself. And, um, it was really, uh, it was really tough. And at the same time, I think I, like a lot of people was beating myself up because I knew on a much more basic level, things could and should have been so much worse. You know, I, I, no one in our family had caught COVID. We were able to, you know, pivot my work and my wife's work so that we could largely stay home. My, my folks uh, who live up in New York were able to spend a, a huge amount of time with us, you know, crammed into my small house here in Virginia to be able to spend every extra minute running shifts so that our daughter could be cared for because she couldn't go to daycare. Um, so I knew at the same time that despite how bad I felt for myself subjectively, objectively, it was almost morally wrong of me to think it mattered. It, it really felt uh, upsetting to, there was a degree of sort of arrogance involved in loathing over the particulars of my situation, which relatively speaking, so many people would have gladly traded places for. Oh, sorry, Jake, you can't go out and run 10 miles today because your hip hurts a little bit. Like, you know, there, there's so many people in such a worse state. And so um, beating myself up over that, and, and I think rightly so to some degree as well, or, or certainly appreciating that is valid to some degree, that made it harder as well. So it was really kind of a, a vicious cycle of, Physical deterioration leading to more emotional de deterioration, leading to psychological deterioration, leading back into more physical deterioration. And that uh, that cycle was – it was known to me too, which was weird. I could see it happening in real time. I could reflect on it and simply being able to label it didn't actually change anything in a way that behaviorally I would have hoped. I think you have an incredible amount of self-awareness and that I think is a good superpower for you because you're able to really step back and appreciate everything that you have and how good things were going for you despite all of your setbacks. And what you experienced 
is what everyone experienced in, in a certain way. You know, we all felt that languishing emotion of just having nothing to look forward to, having, you know, no nothing on the calendar of everything being called into question and having to pivot or having to think about things differently. And, you know, so you're certainly not alone in that. And I don't know if you read, it, it was published, I think, April 19th or 20th by Adam Grant in the New York Times. It was an article about this phenomenon of languishing. And, it, you know, it's not necessarily some poor mental health issue that people are experiencing. It's kind of this middle ground where, you know, it's it's just a sense of stagnation and emptiness. You know, you're muddling through your days, you're looking at your life through a foggy windshield. And, and I think for anyone who is is like you, who's, you know, you're running two different businesses, you're a new dad, you're trying to recover from a serious injury, you're working on your doctoral dissertation. I mean, Jake, how hard was your life a year ago? And, and I feel like you did a pretty good job of being kind to yourself. You let some things slide. And and I'd love to talk about how, you know, w- was this, do you have a sense that this was just temporary? You're like, yeah, I'm kind of letting myself go, but it's going to change in a couple months. Do you think about your situation, your injury, the fact that you are losing your fitness and, and kind of getting out of shape? Do you think that was going to be long-term or permanent how did you kind of wrap your head around that in a more productive way? Uh, well, first off, thanks for the the kind words there. Um, I suppose the uh, that that is a very positive spin of the uh, the upside to being born and raised by two clinical psychologists and, and studying graduate psychology for years is the the blessing and the curse of the interest in self reflection. But but thank you for that. And in all seriousness, that's very kind of you to say. Uh, I will say yes to your question in short, which is. I did think it was temporary. Ordinarily, I would. And part of that is because on some level, that languishing, that sort of psychological purgatory that a lot of us have found ourselves in, that was actually a more known, well-known emotion to me. I, I, I've sort of had to deal with chronic dysthemia since I was in high school. Dysthemia, for those who don't know, is kind of the clinical definition of sort of like a low grade, never really going away, but never really terrible sense of depression. Um, it was kind of a, for me, it's always been kind of like a, a bit of an existential, like, meh, what's the point to me? And, and, um, really only a little bit later on in my later twenties did I really give, uh, did I give myself a chance to actually try some things that, that would help with that? Um, Pharma, uh, pharmaceutically, I've you know I'm obviously a big proponent of therapy in, in general and have uh, self-analyzed and, and gone to clinical therapy for a while. But you know, actually, after trying a couple of different low-level, just small amount of antidepressants, I found a combination of things in the right milligram dosage that generally made it a little bit easier for me to kind of just turn that part of my brain off and focus on the part of my brain that wanted to flourish a little bit more. Um, so that was a big differentiator. And I share that to say, like, I, I knew that, like, I've known that languishing to me, that was actually much more of a daily reality for a long time than something induced just by the pandemic and not being able to see friends. And so I've had coping mechanisms for that. One of them is one that you mentioned, which is the intellectualization of it, right? The 
rational definition of the problem, the calling it what it is, the sort of scientific way of looking at what's going on in my cognition that's causing this. And um, that's usually helpful. The difference here, though, was the ambiguity of so much of the external environment that was new. For me, it was new on a micro level in that we had, you know, an infant who, generally speaking, during the day would only nap for 35 minutes at a time and at night would be up every few hours. And and honestly, I I say that knowing that my wife bore the brunt of that, uh, certainly in the evenings. And the other piece was essentially, you know, I, I thought even reading about it and being, you know, pretty, pretty research literate early on and knowing, okay, this is probably worse than it seems, but I really figured that we had enough in place in the US that we would be able to sort of do a pretty good job of withstanding the virus from a, you know, social standpoint. I actually was kind of convinced early on that vaccines would come a lot earlier, you know, all those timetables where it was like, you know, vaccines take five to 10 years. And I was like, yeah, well, that's because the whole world isn't focused on trying to find a vaccine. You know, the science is there, the funding's there now, you know, we can get people through trials pretty quickly. Like this will actually be out in a year or two, but I didn't think it would take vaccines to get the world back to normal here in the U S I thought isolation locking down. I thought we had a population, frankly, that was a little bit more, educated and involved in their thinking about what was necessary to curb, you know, a pandemic and contagions. And so with the world kind of in chaos, and then in the US, just the angst around the upcoming election permeated every day. I mean, it's amazing how much I've already repressed that. Uh, But for me, that was really difficult. I was really worried, uh, bluntly, that Trump would get reelected. I didn't agree with a lot of his principles uh, at a vision. And thought he was a pretty, I didn't agree with just about any of them, actually. I thought he was a pretty horrible leader at executing them. So uh, I didn't feel like we were kind of on a ship that was sailing in any reasonable direction. Uh, so it, what could have been and should have been like the, okay, this is temporary. Like I'll find my groove. My body's young. I'll get back there. I just got to wait it out. My hip will heal. I'll be able to just start running again. It wasn't going to organically happen, at least not at any point during 2020. There was no bounce back the way back in college, you or I just would have took a week or two off and our bodies would have you know, magically repaired that tissue. That wasn't going to happen. There was just too much in flux. And I think that was, uh, that was terrifying. And I coped with it by just trying to every single day say like, your only job right now is to get through the next six hours. You know, it's run the mile you're in. The only job right now is to get to the next mile marker. The only job right now is the future is unknown. The past is gone. Just get to the next mile marker. And it was a lot of that. And that kind of um, sort of mental training is not something I'm great at. So it didn't didn't go as well as I know it probably should have for someone who uh, I would have thought it was frankly just had a lot more mental toughness than someone like me. And when, Jake, did you finally start to go for a run. Did you did you get to a certain point last year where you thought maybe I can put on my running shoes, take a couple steps and just see how it feels? I did it a few times over the summer. Uh I made a point of doing it on Father's Day with my father there and my daughter in the running stroller. I just sort of said I don't care how much this hurts, like this is a moment that I really want to have. And so we did a really short run. And uh, there were one or two times over the summer where I would go, uh, but I couldn't get more than 
you know, a mile at a really slow pace without it hurting. And also didn't feel like I was running. I felt like I, you know, I felt like I was sort of like speed walking. I was like the version of myself that I just couldn't stand. And so it, it actually became just as painful to try to run psychologically as it was physically. And I, uh, I really didn't get a chance to really run again until maybe about a month or two ago, I decided, um, you know, it's been long enough. Just even if you have to start walking, just go outside and run. You know, I remember when I had my really bad IT band injury after my first marathon, 2008, 2009. And when I was finally healthy enough to start running, I went to physical therapy, saw so many PTs, got a lot stronger. And I was like, okay, I, my body can actually withstand running. I remember going for a run. I ran two miles, my first run back in about 18 minutes. So I, I was running about a nine minute that. mile I pace. I was killed to do that. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's still, you know, such a knock to your confidence oh. because I was like, well, my easy pace used to be seven minutes per mile. I only missed six months. I mean, you missed just about a year. And I just thought, you know, w with how I feel right now running nine minute pace, that doesn't even really feel like an easy effort for me. And that was almost just as hard as not going for a run, just sitting on the couch, feeling sorry for yourself. And, and that return to your previous fitness level is, I think, just as psychologically difficult as it is physically difficult. When I was really little, I was probably about 11 years old. We had a family friend. Actually, he was a husband of a, one of my parents' cousins. And we would spend some time with a lot of our family, a lot of sort of extended family over the summer um, on the beach in New England. And I remember distinctly him talking about how he was going to go out for a swim, even though he really didn't want to at the ocean. And I was said, like, why are you, you know, why are you doing that? Why don't you just hang out? And he said, I'm just afraid of getting out of shape because if one day I want to get back in shape, it's so painful. And that, I, you know, as an 11 year old, always really stuck with me as it was such an interesting motivation for doing something athletic. I had never really thought about that. And I think you're right that on a certain level, that return to fitness post injury is really psychologically difficult on a very basic level because you're comparing yourself to a recent version of yourself and your confidence is gone. It was like, hang on, I made a lot of choices recently. I put in a lot of sweat recently. I put myself to some stress recently to get really fit. And now it's been knocked out of me and I'm far away from that. Man, it took a lot to get there and now I'm far away. It's also in a very real way, a reminder of our mortality, right? It's a very real sort of, oh, hang on, this this doesn't get any easier. Rehab is going to get harder every single time. And I may never get back to this place I was. Did I take it for granted? What, what am I taking for granted right now? Um, so I think on a very kind of immediate level, there's a, oh, goodness gracious, I'm, I'm running my easy pace below threshold 30% slower. Yeah, as a scientist in the sport uh, or, or wannabe scientist in the sport, I sort of knew that, yeah, okay, like it's going to take a little time to get back to, you know, easy pace in the low sevens. That's fine. But the recognition that actually I had taken all of this sort of ability to just lace up my shoes and go out for a run when I was feeling less than 100% for granted, uh, that was something that I knew I could never really get back. And I also knew it was always only going to get worse. Well, you mentioned recently that you've started running a little bit in the last couple months. We're recording this now. We have some video going and you're wearing your cycling kit. You just got back <laughs> from a ride. So, you know, like, tell us what's changed. What's changed in the last couple months? You seem to have a little bit 
more of this drive to to get back into shape. You're doing some more running. You're doing some other things to get fit. What's changed? I think the world has changed uh, a little bit, and that has really led directly to me seeing the immediate world around me likely being different. I think the arrival of the vaccines, I think the sort of relative, and certainly this is different for different people in different parts of the country, but the relative overall calm of sort of the state of political America, that the temperature is just lower day to day. And the arrival of spring in conjunction with the vaccines has really made it seem like, okay, like this tunnel that we kept hoping we'd see light in. No, that's that's not just an illusion here. That's not just our eyes adjusting to the dark. That There is light at the end of this tunnel here in the US. And that I think has really spurred me to feel like, well, if at some point it's going to take me some work to get in better shape, why not now? And I really have been trying to be mindful of the idea that sometimes what you need to do, often what you need to do actually, is take the actions around the habits that matter first, knowing that the psychological desire to lead to those outcomes that you're targeting in the first place will come later. And so I have just sort of said like, okay, rather than waiting until I'm feeling good and things are calm and my daughter's in daycare and my hip is just naturally feeling better to then start running. Let me just pick a couple of things that I know I'm going to need to do as soon as I feel that way and start doing them first. Um, and so I went and I decided to find a physical therapist who was open and in person and found a, a great new physical therapist in the area who I just started working with. And I'm really excited because she really seems like she knows what she's doing. Uh, I bought an old refurbished bike so that I could spend time with one or two recently vaccinated friends uh, you know, on the weekends doing something athletic. And I've also put some stuff on the schedule that I know I have to kind of start positioning myself for in a way that actually makes it real. Um, so you know, we've got this retreat coming up that I know you and I are going to be a part of in uh, Colorado. And, and one of our other friends who's helping me put that together, Peter Bromka, who I know you know, um, was encouraging me and just saying, like, think about how good it might feel to be able to just do easy runs with everybody there and not have to bike alongside. And I've been trying to imagine that and, and conjure that a little bit. Um, I also committed to a friend of mine that we would do a triathlon uh, this summer in July, which would be my first. I'm a horrible swimmer and I don't enjoy biking. Uh, so I knew that scheduling something like that and having someone else with me was going to be particularly motivating the idea of going, you know, having to drive out of the way, stay somewhere, pay for this thing, having that on the schedule, having that as a commitment to someone else for me was a real motivator. And so that's gotten me to go to the pool a little bit and do some biking and try to get back and do some weightlifting and just doing a little bit of flexibility work every day. Uh, I still need to do much better about my nutrition. And I'm aware of that. That's the sort of the next big piece for me. I just, I really enjoy eating fruit snacks. Like I really do have a, a sugar hankering, you know, so I've got to, <laughs> got to be, usually I could get away with it. If you're running 10 miles a day, that's part of the beauty of it. Just pound those carbs. I love it. But these days it's, it's not as smart and as thoughtful as I need to be, um, you know, being more, more thought conscious about that. So I think really trying to put um, sort of action a little bit ahead of desire and force myself in that way. And, and circumstances change too. Our, you know, our daughter was able to start daycare thanks to the daycare staff getting vaccinated. So suddenly I have eight hours of my day that 
are just better. And she's sleeping a little better at night because she's exhausted from playing with other kids all day. Um, and so there's an element where I'm trying to turn what was a clearly negative cycle. I'm, I'm trying to stick a, you know, stick a broom handle through the spokes of that wheel and reverse it, right? And, and try to make it a positive cycle by putting some things on the calendar. And the other thing I learned, Jason, I don't know if this is your experience, but for me, one of the things that I guess I underappreciated about what made me excited to run and getting fit was not just the prospect of having races on the calendar because I wanted to compete. I'm not actually naturally that competitive. I, I like winning, but I actually just don't mind losing that much. So I'm not that competitive. But it was this notion of being in the mix of training for something and talking to other people who train for things and being in that kind of constant conversation of like, well, what if six months out, I can actually run a half marathon at this pace and we could go, we could drive down to this place and run in that half marathon. That's really fast. And man, if I could, if I could do that, maybe with, maybe with these new shoes, well, I'd have a whole level of confidence and maybe I could jump in this race. And what if we did a relay right afterwards when I was still fit, like just having all of those conversations with other people who are into running really about bullshit, right? Really that like sort of running bullshit, like talking about training for stuff as if we were actually elite when we're not, but knowing that it was fun and interesting and you were testing your body and thinking about things and and what you're going to get out of it, kind of being in that mindset of, you know, caring about the little parts of the journey to a destination like a marathon or something. I didn't realize how much that was a motivator for me. And just to be able to be like, yo, I did this workout today. And honestly, I might be able to run like a 215, 800 if I really, right? That, like just all of those little conversations, I didn't realize how much those were a motivator to kind of keep me going out and put in the hard hours that you need to by yourself as a runner. You're reminding me of every bus ride after a track or cross country <laughs> meet <laughs> totally. when every runner is sitting around talking about the race, talking about the training that led up to the race, their splits, the performance, how they could do better, maybe if they wore different spikes and just all of the little things that you'd start talking about as runners that makes it so fun. And you can and, keep having those conversations, right? Now we right? can do them and you can go look at a race you might run. And, well, let me check at last year's results and look at the age group and you know what? Like if I'm actually in this shape, as long as this guy doesn't show up, I might actually finish second here. You know, it's, it's all of that that goes into the training that I never really realized was such a big part of what motivated me to train. I just thought it was the output of the fact that I was training. I didn't realize that in turn was an input to fuel more training that I've really missed. And so I'm really excited about putting some things on the calendar and bugging people like you and other friends with random text messages at all hours of the day, like, hey, what if we did this? What if this happened? What if the weather's really nice for this race? Maybe we'd go watch the pros and then, I don't know, maybe maybe we'll enter the mile. Who knows? That That's what I'm really looking forward to having as part of my daily routine a little bit more. Yeah, man. It's endlessly complex and runners have so much fun geeking out about all the details. And And I think that is just a perfect summary of all that. Now, you did say three things the last the last five ten minutes have just been pure gold jake right, just and i want to rest then no one needs to hear me opining about my psychological health for the last two years let's just leave it at that. <laughs> well i do want to talk about three mindsets or strategies that you mentioned that i think are broadly applicable to everyone okay and when in terms of motivation in terms of drive in terms of getting your head on right and getting the right mindset about training and the sport i mean number one you talked about action before thoughts and how your actions can really help model your beliefs and thoughts and the opinion that you have about yourself and 
you know, how you think about the future. And there's a lot of different things that go into that. And, and I think it's so valuable to just get started, take action, start doing something to start building that, you know, that muscle memory of doing something. And that really can carry you forward in a really big way. Now, the other thing that you mentioned was, you know, just community, having people around you to talk about your running, to share those intimate details of how your training is going and your splits and what you're thinking about in the future. And, and I think that has largely been missing over the last you know year plus. And that's been an enormous psychological disadvantage just to not be around other people. Uh, and then kind of similar to that is just the environment. You know, you talked about how the world has changed and that's helped you get a little bit more motivated and, and start taking some of these actions. Everything from, you know, maybe a little bit of a calmer political climate to spring rolling through, you know, the United States right now. And the fact that, you know, there's vaccines and people are a little bit more optimistic and some races are starting to be held right now. And, and I think it really goes to show how important your environment is. And if you want to be a successful runner, now, of course, some of this is out of your control, but if you want to really achieve your potential, I think creating that environment around you where you have the optimism and the space to really think about your training and hopefully guide you in the right direction. And almost like, you know, you're putting, you're putting bumpers on the bowling alley, you know, in the bowling alley, you're kind of giving yourself those constraints or those environmental constraints that help you stay on the right path. And I think that is so valuable to runners who want to run fast, runners who want to run big distances, you know, whatever your goal is, even if it's just hanging out with friends and going to different races and having fun, you know, we can think back to college. What a great environment for training. You know, you had a coach, you had teammates, you had a lot of things taken care of for you so you didn't have to worry about it. And what happened? I mean, a lot of us were running the fastest times that we ever were. Of course, that was a function of our physiology being, you know, testosterone-fueled boys, you know, in 18 to 22 years old. But a lot of that is environment. And so I'm really glad you brought all those issues up because I think they're so broadly accessible to everyone else. It's such a nice point there, Jason. And thank you. I'm, I'm glad you found it valuable because I think that that environmental piece is worth probing on because to write at the macro level, you do have very little control. And that word control is the key, right? That is the uh, such a core psychological driver for us as sort of the way our species is wired to try to survive and then ideally thrive and flourish is this notion of control. And, and we each have different needs for control and different things that that control manifests toward. A lot of that felt like it slipped away over the past year. Uh, so much of what we never realized was something, you know, it, it's like suddenly you're building a house and at worst you thought that maybe like you discover in the foundation, there were some cracks or that there was, you know, some issue with the kind of rock formation there only to realize that the tectonic plates far below have suddenly started shifting. And the rest of the little concerns that you thought were the only things you had to worry about controlling have been completely thrown off, right? Everything is completely on tilt. And I think as best you can, knowing that the reality is, I think if COVID has shown us anything about this notion of control in the broader environment, it's that we never really had that control and we don't really need that control either. And, and what we should try to focus on is you know, the, the sphere of control that we can execute on 
trying to put in within that bubble, within that sphere, as many of the things that will guide us towards the destinations that we care about as possible. So if that for us is running and being fit and whether, again, that's a PR at a certain distance or qualifying for Boston or just being able to be fit enough to on any given day, lace up if your friends want to go for a run and just do it. Whatever those fitness goals are, trying to think about, well, what are some things that in every given day I can just build in? Like if I was going to make a list right now, what would be the things that I know would, as you mentioned, kind of be the guardrails, the bumpers to that alley that got me towards those center pins and trying to just put those in rather than waiting for everything to fall into place so they can appear. That was really powerful. There's a nice piece not too long ago. Again, I feel like we're advertising for the New York times here. Um, Lindsay Krauss wrote a nice piece about this notion of kind of action driving behavior uh, in order to get out of a rut. Uh, so I thought that was really nice and it would definitely encourage readers to read her piece around that as well. Um, but I, I couldn't agree more with you. The extent to which one can control anything at a macro level, at a free will micro level, try to establish what you would put in the sphere of control that you have to make running, if it's what you care about, something that will be successful. Yeah. And I should mention too, that Lindsay Krauss is a prior podcast guest. We had a very fascinating conversation on just uh, how the running industry can better invest in women and running journalism. And it was really fascinating. We published that in February of 2020, if folks want to check that out. Yeah. She's a, she's a great voice on those topics. So that's awesome. I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. Now I want to follow up a little bit on environment and how that's so critical for you know, how you think about your running and, and how driven you are to accomplish your goals. Uh, you've been doing some awesome stuff with helping runners create a better environment around them. Uh, this August, you are hosting a running retreat in Boulder, Colorado, one of the one of the best places, I think, in my some humble Some of the opinion. best looking podcasters reside in Boulder. That's what I've been told. Yeah, with Denver too. Come on, Jake. There's some good looking podcasters in Denver, right? <laughs> Probably. I don't know. I haven't been in Denver <laughs> in a long time. Well, I'm excited about it. And Devo Run is your kind of your baby, something you've created. Uh, I can't wait to actually attend and participate in it this fall. You know, you're kind of putting on this amazing retreat for runners uh, at a time when I think runners need this. I think if you're vaccinated, if you feel comfortable with it, you know, this is such an amazing time to connect with other runners. It's almost like a, uh, you know, not that COVID's over, but a, a post-pandemic celebration of running, if you will. And, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, what the retreat is going to look like this August. And if folks are interested, where can they go to maybe learn more about it and sign up? Because, I am so excited to hang out with other runners. I, I just haven't done it in so long. And uh, especially in a, a, such a beautiful spot like Boulder. Thanks. Yeah, I, I'm excited to tell you a little bit more about it and tell your listeners about it. And I don't want this to to sound like a, a native ad that we place, but I, I'm genuinely really excited to have some time with some folks who want to sort of supercharge or recharge their running at this weekend. There, there are a lot of great little running retreats that have happened for years around the country where it's typically, you know, you go to a place that's nice to run and, you know, there's one or, you know, usually one person who you've heard of who's there 
and they're kind of the marquee event at the retreat. And what I wanted to build was something actually that was a little bit more that sort of took the best parts of that, but was a little bit more in line with the kind of work I do professionally uh, in, in corporate settings, which is really around incorporating adult learning, self-development. And I would say this retreat is kind of a hybrid vacation and fun workshop. And so we've got a few folks like yourself, like our buddy, Matt Fitzgerald, your long lost cousin, um, our awesome sports dietitian, good runner in her own right, Lydia Nader, Peter Bromp is going to be out there, uh, Boulder resident, pro runner, Addie Bracey, a few other pros who I'll hold off on naming at the moment. I know some of them are hoping to be in Tokyo while we'll be out in Boulder in early August. So they're waiting on uh, how the Olympic trials go in June to see whether or not they'll be with us or ideally out representing the country or other countries uh, out there. But it'll be a combination of some runs in some of the most famous scenic places to run in the world, like Magnolia Road. Anyone who's always who's read uh, Running with the Buffaloes, that old book that uh, you know we kind of I know is on your shelf right there. Um, talked about Magnolia Road. We'll be we'll be on the track with a couple of pros, kind of showing us how they warm up, how they stretch out, how they focus, how they execute a track workout in a fun way that's not intimidating. So if you haven't run a track workout in a long time. You're not going to have to like spike up and have someone barking at you. You're more going to get kind of walked through it and shown what's happening. Although if that is what you want, I'm sure there's some of our pros be happy to do that for you. Um, and then a series of different workshops, book talks from folks like yourself going over some strength routines and techniques. Matt will be giving some book talks. Addie's got a new book on mental training. She's a sort of practicing mental sports coach. That's what her master's work is in. She'll be talking about that. We've got a few other folks coming out there and it's during the track and field events of the Olympics. You know, that weekend that we're there in Boulder from the fifth to the eighth is I think when the marathons are. So we'll, in our downtime, it's not like we're just going to be um, either not with each other or kind of just hanging out doing that. We've really structured this to coincide you know, it nicely comes at a time when most of the country will hopefully be vaccinated, even some of the world will be vaccinated, so that it really feels like a, a reemergence and, and a gathering in that way. But it was really designed to coincide with the Olympic events so that we'd get a chance alongside pro runners and experts to watch the best in the world compete in some of the most exciting forums that there are in the sport. Um, so there's some built-in downtime activity there as well, which is awesome. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about it. We've got a couple dozen folks already signed up and a lot more who are just waiting to make sure they can get off from work before they grab one of the spots we have left or you know, wanted to make sure they could get vaccinated. So I'm actually thinking that in the next couple of weeks, um, we've gotten you know information from a lot of folks that, that want to sign up. It's not going to be too big either. Um, we actually just, we just released a, a newsletter uh, called Introverts, This Is For You Too, uh, because despite me being an extrovert, many of our staff are introverts. My, my wife is uh, an absurd introvert. And so we wanted to make sure that those who might like the idea, but be worried about having to spend that much time around strangers that they don't know would be uh, over intoxicating. Uh, I promise you that's not the case either. There will be no mandatory large group icebreakers. Um, we'll have a lot of small group and one-on-one -on -one time. Nothing is mandatory. So there'll be a lot of downtime during those few days as well. So it should be a really great mix. And I think I know I'm there to sort of facilitate the experience, but I think if I was attending it as a participant, I would be using that to kickstart or to supercharge a training regimen for the fall, right? It comes in that early August timeframe when most marathons, you're either kind of like at a point in your training, if you've got something coming up in September where you're like really need something to kind of 
make sure you finish strong. Or if you're looking at like a late fall, you know, New York City marathon type thing, or one of the big events that happens in that cooler weather, this is where you get your training started. And in fact, the fact that you could be out there with folks like yourself and Matt Fitzgerald who can help write and edit your own personal training plans while we're there, that to me should be awesome. So uh, I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited that you'll be a part of it. I'm excited. Um, anyone who's part of Team Strength Running gets access to a special discount that I'll share in the Team Strength Running Facebook group as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm just really excited about the fact that it's a lot of nice things are coming together. And, you know, for me, it's like that thing that I'm just going to commit to and put on the calendar as, yes, I care about running. This is that action I'm going to take. And, and I know quite a few folks have actually written to me saying that, like, they're looking to get back to their running self. And so putting this on the calendar is the thing that they're both trying to get in a little bit better shape for and that is going to ideally give them the, the kickstart that they need going into the fall. Yeah. It's like a forcing function. It kind of yeah. forces you to get into shape because it's very similar to putting a race on the calendar. So yeah, I'm super excited about it, especially because it's sort of close to me. I've already had some <laughs> childcare discussions with my wife because I, I definitely want to make this happen and I just can't wait. It'll be almost like a, a second vacation. I think I'm going to visit some family in mid to late July then come home, get settled. And then I'll be off to Boulder to hang out and go running with folks and talk about running. It's just going to be a, a four days of just running nerdery that I am so excited for. <laughs> it, it's going to be great. Yeah. And it's, you know, like, like you said, it's, you know, we start on Thursday night and it goes until Sunday afternoon. So, you know, most folks who work Monday to Friday will only have to take Friday off or maybe a little bit of Thursday if you want to fly out to Boulder and we tried to keep it, um, our original plans when we had started Endeavor on pre-pandemic, we were going to be in a different location that was a little bit more like you have to go in our housing, you have to do it this way. We wanted to save some of the cost of the retreat so that folks who either are in the area or have friends in the area or want to stay on the cheap on their Airbnb or use their old hotel points that have been piling up. And luckily Marriott Starwood is letting us carry over that they can do that. We do have some hotel rooms actually blocked off as well. Um, but we've got a nice little house where the coaches will be staying. They'll serve as a home base and it should just be an awesome place to hang out. There'll be some really cool pros there that you can just talk to about their experiences. So um, I, I really do hope that your listeners who I know are just some of the most fun people in this sport that you and I get to hang out with. I know it's why you do what you do. Um, will take us up on a chance to hang out uh, and teach us as much as, as we'll teach them. I'm sure. Yeah. Bringing people together. I'm so excited that we can finally do this now. Um, I'm going to include links to EndeavorRun.com and the Boulder Retreat details in the show notes for this episode so folks can go check it out. If you're able to come to Colorado and see us in Boulder this August, it would be absolutely amazing. And uh, Jake, I just want to thank you for, you know, opening up and being vulnerable with us today. You know, I've certainly had my own personal brushes with long-term injuries and, you know, the mental side effects of that. I think those can be just as devastating, if you will, as, as the physical effects of those kinds of long-term injuries. You know, you start second guessing who you are and that can really impact your progress. Uh, and so you've been on quite a journey. I'm glad that journey has turned around for you and things are looking a lot more positive for you. So thanks for reminding us that we can always grow despite some setbacks. Sure. Well, well, thanks for making a space to talk about it. And in general, I, I'm appreciative of it because I think that there needs to be much more openness and dialogue about 
the impact of the sort of psychological and physical elements of the sport on everyday runners who just like that as a part of their lives. And it should not be this hidden thing in a world that's driven by kind of Instagram and Strava postings of how fast everyone's running. It should be a real honest part of the journey. So thanks to you, uh, my old bud, to, and, and to your listeners for creating a community where that's really uh, not only encouraged, but as an expectation. And, and that honesty, I think, makes everyone a better runner. And, and again, I, I really do hope to see folks, please, if you have any questions, by the way, I know Jason will put it, you can email me, I mean, you can always DM me or something like that on Instagram, but you can email me jake at endeavorrun.com. And honestly, the other thing I'll say is if at the end of the day, you really want to make that a part of your life, but uh, the the cost of it is something that right now is super prohibitive, shoot me an email. We may be able to, to try to do something and put together. I, I don't publish this that widely, but I really do uh, especially for this one, want it to be the kind of thing where uh, that isn't too prohibitive. So if, if we can, uh, if you really do have a need-based reason to to inquire about that, I'd love to be able to see what we could do in, in helping you out. So please don't let that, that, if that's the only thing stopping you, let me know and, and we'll do what we can. That's very generous of you, Jake. Thank you. And uh, can't wait to see you in a couple months, man. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks again for having me on this podcast. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast and joining me for this conversation. As always, it's my goal to inspire you to train and give you at least one actionable takeaway that you can use to improve your running. A big thanks to Jake for making the time to share his story. Don't forget that you can come hang out with me, Jake, Peter Bromka, Matt Fitzgerald, and many others from the running world in Boulder, Colorado this August. Learn more about the Endeavor Run Retreat at endevorun.com. And if you'd like to register, code STRENGTHRUNNING, one word, will save you $100 on that registration fee. Finally, our sponsor Elemental Labs has some exciting news to share. They have released their first new flavor of 2021, their most requested flavor, watermelon salt. Now, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll notice a story I published recently of the box they sent me with one of those large ice cube trays. I'm so excited to freeze up some watermelon salt and use that in a cocktail soon. I'll keep you updated on that and do let me know if you try it. Now, if you're not familiar with this company, I love them. Elemental Labs makes electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks that doesn't have any sugar, no artificial ingredients or colors, and I am particularly partial to the citrus flavor, which I honestly can't get enough of. It's tasty, it's delicious, it's something that I really enjoy, especially when I do any running more than about 45 minutes or so. And for those athletes running more than five days a week, training for longer events like the half marathon or beyond, or if you're outside in the heat a lot, an electrolyte replacement makes a lot of sense. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that Navy SEAL teams, Olympic teams, and pro athletes have started using elemental electrolyte supplements to improve their performance. You can check them out at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You can check out their new watermelon flavor to get your hydration optimized for the upcoming summer season. Thank you for being here. I so appreciate the reviews of the show many of you have left recently. Those are surprisingly important and help other runners discover us. So if you haven't yet, I would love a review in Apple Music. Thank you again, and we'll be in touch soon. 